We have a great guest rejoining us in this hour. Always good to talk to him. Scott and Paul is our guest, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, the AAM. They're a partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. Now, for the past five years, Scott and the AAM have worked to make American manufacturing, not five years, more than that now. Uh, they've worked to make manufacturing, American manufacturing, a top-of-mind issue for voters. And as we saw, it certainly was in this last election. And also to our national leaders. They've done it through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR strategy. More than a pleasure to have back with us Scott M. Paul, president of the AAM. Hey, Scott, good afternoon. Happy Monday. Leslie, happy Monday to you. Great to be with you. You know, at first, I thought of you, actually, when we heard of a company called Carrier who was going to send jobs to Mexico, and then they weren't, and then we find out it's not as beautiful and packaged with the red ribbon that we thought it was when all the facts came out. Um, one, more jobs going to Mexico than staying. Two, some people say, well, if he kept one job here, he being president-elect Donald Trump, that's a good thing. Um, but um, can Donald Trump create manufacturing jobs with this type of tactic? There are a few problems here. One, Carrier is still sending over 1,000 jobs to Mexico, and for the future, there's no guarantee they won't. Uh, just, you know, um, you know, a few hundred, some would say actually at the end of the day, it's 300 new, 800 total, depends who you ask on the number uh, that were saved. And then some people say when you look at just uh, Rexicon, I think, is down the street and they're sending, um, you know, they're setting up shop. They're moving entirely to Mexico. So uh, it, it is the, the, the less than a thousand, but hundreds of jobs. A, did Donald, President-elect Donald Trump actually save these jobs? And B, at what price? All great questions, and you know one of the one of the things that I think we've come to learn both from the Trump uh, the, the Trump campaign and the presidency is there's a big announcement and then a lot of publicity about it, and then when you fill in the details, you know that's when more of the truth starts to emerge. But by that time, the narrative has been largely written. No exception with the, with the carrier deal here. So, you know, I'm a Hoosier. Uh, from Indiana, I love that there will be some Indiana jobs here next year that otherwise would have gone overseas, about 730 steelworker jobs. And, Leslie, I'll point out that these are these are good jobs. It's a diverse workforce, both uh, women and men and African-American and, and white. So it's a, you know, it's, it's an amazing workforce they have at the carrier plant. But there's a lot of their brothers and sisters uh, who, whose jobs will still be going overseas. And, and one of the other carrier plants in Indiana will still be closing down. Uh, you, I was talking to an economist uh, just a few minutes ago, and we both agreed that, you know, when you look at trade flows, you know, there's probably something on the order of, you know, 1,500 jobs a month that are being uh, at the very least, uh, shipped overseas. Uh, and, and we ran through a database that the Department of Labor keeps um, called the Trade, Adjust- Trade Adjustment Assistance Program. It's for workers who have been certified that they've lost their jobs to uh, shifts of production overseas, so their plant moved overseas. And since the beginning of 2015, so within the last two years, uh, there have been 1,600 separate plants uh, or workplaces uh, that have been uh, certified as having their jobs moved overseas. So that's, you know, and Carrier's only one of those. Uh, so, you know, this was a you, you, great news for these 730 folks, but the deal wasn't as good as it could have been. 
wasn't as good as it should have been. It's certainly not a blueprint for how you want to do economic policy in this country moving forward. Um, and, you know, if, if it stands on its own, you know, it's, again, I'm happy the jobs are here, but it will be largely a lot of great publicity uh, for Donald Trump uh, without uh, some tough policy uh, to, to back it up. I agree. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. That's our uh, first break in the hour. You have questions, you have comments about not just Carrier, but about President-elect Donald Trump's ability to create jobs, and is there a blurred line, and should there be, between government and the private sector? Remember, although he may be creating jobs at Carrier, he may be getting rid of jobs on the federal level. Job loss is job loss. I know some people think of the private sector versus public sector, but across the board, if you have job loss and that number is higher than job gain, we still have a problem, America. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Scott and Paul's our guest, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Follow him on Twitter at Scott Paul, A-A-M-S-C-O-T-T-P-A-U-L-A-M. The website, AmericanManufacturing.org. We have lots more to talk about with regard to manufacturing, carrier, and other issues uh, surrounding this Monday. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. We're back with Scott and Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, on this Monday. And um, we um, are talking about, you you know, many things, but... Uh, one of which is the debate over what happened with Carrier um, in the great state of Indiana, where Scott hails from, uh, and manufacturing jobs in uh, the heartland. And, uh, Scott, thank you for holding uh, welcome back. As always, we love, you know, having you with us. Um, there is a, a debate that is going on as to, and, and you touched upon it, you know, I mean, you know, the precedent uh, that, this, that, that this sets and, you know, what the future could be in a Donald Trump world and uh, presidency. Um, the debate um, over carrier and manufacturing jobs in the heartland, you were on Poppy Harlow's um, show on CNN, and, you know, you did, um, you know, a, a great piece. And right before you came on, they, they flashed that, you know, that the, the, the jobs report, right? The 178,000 jobs created 4.6 unemployment rate below 5%, which was, I think, a goal of President Obama's that some people thought uh, wasn't uh, attainable. Um, Donald Trump says time to remove rust from the rust belt. But is what he did with Carrier removing rust, is it enough? And is there a line that is and even should be blurred between president and private sector jobs? Yeah, those are all great questions. So I I will say that you know, it's not uncommon for presidents to try to intervene in some ways to try to save jobs at specific private sector companies. And so you think of President Obama with the rescue of General Motors and Chrysler, right? I mean, that's probably one of the biggest examples we have in our recent economic history, clearly picking winners and losers there, uh, but in a major way that impacted our economy positively. And, and there were some people who, who who got hurt in that process. There is no question about it. Uh, but but there's also no question that we have hundreds of thousands of jobs in the United States today that we would not have happened were it not for for that intervention. So I'm not you know I'm not necessarily opposed to job owning companies to keep their jobs here or taking actions. But you know this was a case where it looked like. You know, Trump wanted to make a deal, um, 
you know, they were in a good position to do it because the governor of Indiana is obviously the vice president-elect of the United States. So they could allow Carrier to save face. You give them $7 million in economic development incentives, which in the grand scheme of things is not a lot of economic development money over, over 10 years. Uh, but, but Carrier gave them half a loaf. I mean, Carrier gave them half a loaf, and so it was. Uh, there's still jobs going overseas. So I don't like that as a model for for economic development moving forward. And I think that we have to have some policies that are going to present those jobs. That are going to prevent those jobs from being offshored uh, in the first place. So that's going to take uh, some efforts on infrastructure and trade and investment and training and lots of other things. And, and Leslie, there's real questions about whether. Trump is going to be able and willing to do this if the Republicans in Congress are going to be able and willing to do this. But the one thing that I that I will say is that I hear a lot of a lot of commentators saying, "Well, those those jobs are going overseas, and there's nothing that we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it at all. We should just let them go overseas, and we'll focus on uh, developing software apps and flipping burgers and, uh, and 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 doing you know things in the healthcare industry and what have you." And to that, I say that's really defeatist. I think that we ought to be fighting for these jobs. I think there's a way to keep manufacturing in this country. I don't think it will look like the way Donald Trump envisioned like 1950s Pittsburgh or something like that. Uh, but I do think that we can make amazing things here, autonomous vehicles and 3D printers and all sorts of other fantastic things if we have the right policies. Uh, and, and that's what I think the real question is, is Trump going to deliver those policies? And and I agree with you 100%. Um, some would say that the policies that he's pitching with a Republican majority in the House and the Senate are much more likely to happen. We had some people I saw on TV that, that say, you know, polls were showing a conversation in the small business community. Um, we're, more, we're more confident uh, post a, a Trump um, election uh, than, you know, people had been feeling with President Obama and maybe even the possibility of a, a President Clinton. Um, is Would you say this is common from where you stand? I mean, Scott, with manufacturing, there are so many jobs that are under the umbrella of unions. And Democrats are very pro-union, and Republicans want to demonize and blame unions. So on, the, on, on one hand, it's sort of like, really? You know what I mean? These Rust Belt jobs. Um, on the other hand, uh, Republicans, and especially uh, President-elect Trump, did speak to the uh, woes and fears and concerns you know, of that community. But historically, in your professional opinion, who has been more friendly to manufacturing if, and I know you're a nonpartisan organization, I'm just looking at the facts, uh, Democrats or Republicans when they're running things in Congress? Yeah, well, that's a real question. And doing that, what we call kind of political economy, is always a little bit dangerous because you have to account for business cycles and a lot of things that are beyond the control of policy, but a lot of things are. And and the fact of the matter is that Obama inherited a terrible manufacturing economy. For the first year of his his term, it was still bleeding a lot of manufacturing jobs. Uh, But since 2010, it's added, uh, you know, close to 800,000 net jobs uh, in manufacturing. So that's that's not too shabby. Overall, he's lost about 300,000 manufacturing jobs uh, in his nearly eight years now, which seems like, oh, that's a terrible record. But then you rewind from 2000 to 2009, the, the, the administration of George Bush presided over the loss of over 5 million manufacturing jobs, 5 million. So 
that that's a that's a terrible record and 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 if you take it on back you know Clinton even though there was the the NAFTA agreement uh manufacturing jobs held pretty steady uh but they were certainly worse under under Bush so it's you know it's a dangerous game for Republicans to say you know we're we're going to move forward we're going to uh we're we're, we're going to create a great environment for manufacturing jobs it it it, it takes a little bit of luck like where you are in the business cycle uh, it, a lot depends on what's happening in the rest of the global economy and, and then policy matters trade policy what you're doing to spur domestic demand through like rebuilding our infrastructure what our what our tax policy looks like if the if the economy is well managed and so i think those are real questions that that trump is going to confront and is he going to assemble a team or are they going to have the right policies or are they going to get you know paul ryan mitch mcconnell on board uh, for some for some of the stuff he says he wants to do uh, and and I, I think the jury's still out on that. And the the carrier deal, uh, to me, is is not a reason to be necessarily optimistic. I just I think that we got to do a lot more. We got to do a lot more, a lot more, uh, to try to give some hope for those beleaguered workers in the industrial heartland, many of whom who did vote for Donald Trump. I mean, the the carrier deal uh, is it may spark their interest, but it's going to take a lot more to create a resurgence in manufacturing that's really going to help them. Um, a, a couple of things. One is, you know, you talk about prevention for the future, right? Uh, penalizing and, and stopping jobs from going overseas, um, you know, which was done with Carrier, but also bringing the jobs back. And President-elect Donald Trump is guilty um, of this sucking sound of jobs overseas. And he can blame NAFTA or anything. But, I mean, quite frankly, I would have, I would have a heck of a lot more respect if the President-elect stood up and said, I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to shut down all of my factories, or I'm going to shut down any operation in which Trump products are being made in Bangladesh, India, Mexico, China, that type of thing, one. And two, he has hundreds of companies overseas. So, I mean, and, and not to mention he used Chinese steel. So, I mean, the, the president-elect, to me, is talking out of both sides. He's talking out of, you know, he's saying one thing, but he's doing another in practice. Yeah, what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. I mean, what, you know, the, the, the Trump clothing line, that, that's low-hanging fruit. Uh, and, and you see none of that. Uh, and, and I don't know what is going to happen with the, with the Trump lines down the road, but that's the perfect example of how, if he's serious about this, that he could, uh, th- that, that he could have said, before I'm bowing out of the business or the day-to-day operations of it, uh, I've, I've decided that all, everything should be made in the United States of America. Um, and we didn't see that. We didn't see that at all. And so I, th- I think you raise a really good point here. And again, you know, the carrier deal was pretty unique in that he was able to have the, you know, the uh, Governor Pence, his incoming vice president-elect, work on this. Uh, it, it's going to be exceptionally difficult to try to micromanage. And I know he told Time Magazine, yeah, I'll call a company up every, every five minutes if I, if I have to, to do this. But, but does anybody re- believe he's really going to do that? Or is that the way to, to create good economic policy that's actually, actually going to create more opportunity for more workers uh, and have them being good-paying jobs? 
you, in a sense, lashed out at the president-elect for his lashing out over um, uh, a, a union boss, right, um, over jobs in Indianapolis. Um, this was a United Steel worker, worker and former um, leader. And you said, and I quote, attacking one of their own is not the best way to appeal to working class voters. So it's sort of like working class voters, in a sense, helped to very successfully elect Donald Trump. And then he turns around and attacks one of their own, right? Yeah, it's it's a you know for Trump to uh, criticize companies to you know criticize politicians who are public figures. That's one thing, but but here's a guy who represents the workers not only at Carrier but at Rexnord, the other plant that you mentioned, Leslie, that's also moving us jobs to Mexico. Yes, 730 of his members will be having jobs, but there's there's also hundreds of workers, hundreds and hundreds of workers, uh, who will still see their jobs going to Mexico. And and Chuck Jones spoke very honestly about that, very very honestly about it, and and both the both the positive and the negative. And you know, it, it's going to be a long four years for Do- Donald Trump if he is so thin-skinned that he can't accept criticism. Right. From the folks who elected him, from uh, his uh, bosses, basically. Right. No, very good points. All very good points. Scott, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. If you want to join us, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Scott and Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, the AAM. Pick up the phone and join us, 888-6-LESLIE. Question or comments, can Donald Trump keep jobs here? And what about the jobs he sent overseas? Follow Scott on Twitter at ScottPaulAAM. And we're back. Scott and Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, is our guest. Their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. And on Twitter, follow Scott there, at ScottPaulAAM. Um, I want to look at Trump's carrier agreement. And PBS did an analysis of the long-term value of that. But I want you to weigh in on that. Um, what is... You know, uh, is it more of a short-term benefit than a long-term benefit, in your opinion? Well, I, I think the answer is it depends. I mean, if the – and I'm trying to find silver linings here, Leslie. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. But if if one of the uh, results of that deal is that there are more companies in the United States when they're thinking about where to source their – supplies their products their supply chain from that if it if it in some way tips the scale to the United States uh Look, that that could be a good thing because there is no question that uh, offshoring uh, has been the fashionable, low-cost business model uh, for the last couple of decades. And it's taken a huge toll on American manufacturing. Uh, It will ultimately take more than just presidential jawboning, these types of threats or inducements, uh, to really tip to, to really tip the scales, I mean, you need you need good trade policies. You need to invest in workers. You need a good infrastructure. Uh, you, you need a lot of things like that. But uh, if, in some way, uh, corporate boardrooms think that uh, they're going to be on notice and that their sourcing decisions are going to be held under greater scrutiny, uh, then I think that's good. But but there's there's one challenge here: is that generally speaking. Uh, the firms uh, th- that are the most exposed on this are the firms that are represented by unionized industrial workers, like the steel workers in the case of Carrier. Th- these are workers who can have their voices being heard uh, during these types of, 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 of bargaining sessions or, or announcements. 
uh, they can get the videos out. They have uh, the the power of the of the uh, of the labor movement behind them. Uh, but but unfortunately, only about ten percent of manufacturing workers are represented by industrial unions. And so for, for for a lot of these layoffs, you don't get this kind of exposure. You don't you don't get this this kind. So so if Trump on the one hand is going to try to reduce the power of industrial unions, uh, and on the other hand is, is, is says he wants to shame companies into doing this, th- th- those don't. Those don't work together. Uh, he's, he's got to recognize the value of of the workers and of industrial unions as well, even if they don't always agree with his point of view, which they most certainly will not. Is it possible? You were on uh, PBS and you were on with Judy Woodruff. And in that interview, she asked you a lot of things. But one of the things you talked about with Judy, which a lot of people don't talk about, is how Trump actually was tweeting about this company um, back in February, right? Um, So almost a year before the election. And Mike Pence, who is his vice president, is governor currently still of the state of Indiana. In other words, was that a conversation that was had and planned before this to make Pence look good, Trump look good? And to do something for Carrier, which in a sense maybe Pence promised. Now I, I know, and, and if so, that sounds like a lot of um, flash in the pan publicity, quid pro quo, all in the same bed. Yeah, and and that's something that we may never know the answer to. Uh, it's clear, and I will just say that there were, you know, Bernie Sanders went to Indianapolis uh, and did a rally with the carrier workers, and, and that they were a cause celeb during the campaign. Uh, it was something tangible uh, where people could see this manufacturing job loss. So, so you have that, but but it's interesting because because throughout this process there were local elected officials, uh, there you know Senator Joe Donnelly, there were others who were trying to work to keep Carrier in Indianapolis. Um, in fact, I know there's a picture of Governor Pence. Uh, I think he even either tweeted or Instagrammed it of Governor Pence meeting with the steelworkers, including Chuck Jones, uh, to, to try to develop strategy. Right. Right. To, to do this, and uh, you know, and it, it and it didn't materialize. So, were they holding this in their pocket? I, look, I don't know the answer to that, but the the fact that there haven't been any of these, you know, subsequent, subsequent deals, look, I, I think they're hard to do. First of all, but second, I think it shows that you know their their goal in part was to get maybe to send signals to corporations. I hope it was, but certainly they they got a lot of very valuable publicity uh, out of it as well. You were asked by Judy Woodruff, but I want to ask again in case people didn't get to see that on PBS. Um, she had said and talked about the $6 million, $7 million in tax incentives that the state of Indiana is offering Carrier. Actually, it was something that they were offered before and had turned it down. Is, is that correct? Why, she asked, is that different now? And, and I want people to hear your question because I did catch your interview with her on PBS. Uh, so I want folks to hear um, what happened there. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that we were trying to get into, you know, why this happened, why this happened uh, now post-election as opposed to not happening over the summer. And I do think that, you know, having, you know, Trump or any other president-elect uh, 
tweeting at you is something that's going to make corporate boards and executives incredibly uncomfortable with. Now, you know, Barack Obama did this in a different way, in, in Obama style, not Trump style, but but he did this uh, with with the CEO of Caterpillar uh, before he took office, and he didn't do it on Twitter, but he but he had conversations with him, which he said, "Please don't lay off your workers. Get, give me a chance to try to, you know, get some of this uh, Recovery Act money, get the economy back on, uh, but but don't lay off your workers." And uh, and, and so again, presidential cajoling uh, is nothing. New, but you know, you know, Trump loves the the grand grand entrance, loves the larger than life spectacle. Uh, but when people got into the details of the deal, uh, you know, even after Trump had mischaracterized it in Indiana, they discovered that it was you know half a loaf. I I called it half a loaf as well. Uh, I also want to go back to something you said um, earlier before the break about Donald Trump saying he'll call every company planning to leave the United States. I mean, first of all, we know that's physically impossible. The president has a lot more to do. Um, But is that what we want? Is that what we need? The president of the United States making calls uh, to companies? Um, You know, you you touched upon this, but let's talk about what we really can do, you know, as as a nation going forward. because I, I, I don't think the people, and I didn't uh, vote for him, but that elected him, elected him to just sit there and call company after company after company, and that's in the private sector. Um, we also have jobs in other sectors, uh, you know, in other, you know, union and non-union entities. Um, so uh, a couple of things, I mean, you know, one, like you said, we know there isn't the time for him to do this. But two, is that the role of the president, in in your opinion, as, you know, president of the AAM yourself, Scott, is the president, is his responsibility and part of his job description, in your professional opinion, to create jobs? Or is it to push forth legislation, to sign into legislation, things that will help that and help the economy? Yeah, I will say tongue-in-cheek that if he's going to tweet about anything, yeah, he should tweet it offshores <laughs> and say, keep your jobs here. But but I, I I can't imagine he can contain himself to that. At least he hasn't exhibited that. So that kind of discipline so far. So that's kind of off the table. And you're right, just from a case management perspective, it's not an efficient way just to, to call through these company lists and, tr- and try to secure a deal. Um, it's, it's not an effective way uh, to, to, to manage your time. And, and what people were, I think, valuing, hopefully, when they voted for him based on these economic issues, is that he was going to make fundamental changes in, in policy. And, and where he has some alignment with Democrats, it was on trade policy, right? I mean, on on opposing some of these bad trade agreements, uh, also getting a better deal. Uh, I think that you know his idea of a better deal may be different than my idea of a better deal. But I think that that that's that's one of the reasons why he was elected. And I also think, Leslie, that you know he he he. Cut captured this nostalgia that a lot of Americans feel for the economy we had, uh, you know, when there was more secure pl- employment, uh, you could have a career at a company, you could get, you know, not only a good wage, but a, but a good benefit as well. And uh, you know, obviously, that's not the common experience for most Americans right now. And it's just a fallacy to think that we can have a 1950s economy uh, where there's going to be 20,000 people working at a factory 
uh, and it's going to be like it was in the old old days. That that's not the global economy today. But that's not to say that we can't compete for jobs, we can't be successful. And so Trump has probably overpromised a lot of stuff that he's going to have a hard time delivering. It's going to take smart policies. He's going to have to take on his own party. He's going to have to realize that the trade unions and some of this can be his ally uh, in, instead of instead of sniping at, at their at their members and at their at their leaders when when they rightfully criticize him for getting half a loaf. Uh, but I, you know, is he up to that? You know, time will tell. But but there's a, there's a lot of workers uh, in in the Midwest in the industrial heartland uh, who obviously supported him and who have huge expectations. Let's take some calls. Eight 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 six Leslie. Eight 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 six five three seven five four three. In Buffalo, New York, line three. Dean joins us. Uh, Dean, question or comment for Scott Paul? Um, yes. Um, I would just like to ask you um, if you think that Trump's um, Trump's anti-union stance will cause him to throw unions under the bus. Um, in exchange for job creation. Okay, Dean, a good question about unions. What about that, Scott? The president-elect is very anti-union, and it looks like a lot of his cabinet picks um, are as well. Yeah, it's not an encouraging sign so far. And he said he he has said uh, you know over the course of his many pronouncements that he thought wages in the United States were too high. That's one of the reasons why we weren't competitive. Uh, and you know we're we're not going to win a race to the bottom. We don't want to win a race to the bottom with China or with Mexico. We need to find ways to play to our strengths, and that that means invest in highly skilled workers. It means recognizing the role of trade unions in our economy. Uh, it means having a smarter trade policy, and and so you know viewing you know an attack on on the people who represent working people in this country uh, is both wasted energy that he could be spending on something else, and is going to be you know counterproductive because that's you know some of the the very diminished bargaining power uh, that workers have right now. It's not. I mean, this election wasn't about. Um, reducing wages for this country. I don't think there's anybody who voted for Trump uh, in the industrial heartland that's like, yeah, I'm going to take a pay cut. You know, they, they, they want better opportunities in the future. And so if they see, you know, if there's a lot of anti-labor uh, legislation that's passed, um, I, I don't see how that helps him in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Scott Paul, president of the AAM, right after this. Pick up the phone and join us, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543 is the number. Let me share a few tweets here. Um, as you know, Scott said carrier shouldn't be the model. You need policies, right? And um, also that the deal wasn't as good as it could have been because it's going to take a lot more than the carrier deal to revive American manufacturing jobs. Rods and Guitars says Trump already said he would reduce corporate taxes and make it an easy choice to stay in the USA. We'll talk about that. Uh, we'll be back. Um, also, uh, the Chuckinator said... Um, Oh, that's something different. <laughs> um, there have been 1,600 factories since 2015 that have moved jobs overseas. You just heard Scott Paul tell me that. That is a problem. We'll be back. Don't go away. 
And we're back. Scott Paul, president of the AAM, is our guest. Hey, Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Let's take more calls, and we go to Mary in Albuquerque, listening on KABQ Radio. Mary, good afternoon. Uh, good Mary, afternoon. Can, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Okay, good, because uh, one time uh, they couldn't. Uh, yeah, I, I worked in the International Trade Administration of Commerce, and when Reagan started destroying our trade promotion program, you know, then we went on to other duties, and I worked on NAFTA only by the industries. I was uh, assigned by their standard industrial classification number, and uh, and also the WTO GATT, which I think was worse. Are, are you there? Yes, I'm listening oh, to you. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, I mean, they blame Clinton for NAFTA, but we did it, and it was signed and had the books ready before Clinton was inaugurated under Father Bush. But American industry, their trade associations and so forth, were for this. I mean, it was it, it broke my heart, you know, the um, jobs being lost, but they want, these companies want to pay lower labor, and they don't want to have to pay, you know, the pollution controls and, and different things that make products cost more or make the, you know the cost of manufacturing more here in America uh, and I don't how do we get around that I you know I'm retired now uh, Scott I'm going to let you yeah. take this one the, the, these are all great questions and thank you for your insights especially since you saw a lot of this from the inside you know for, first on the policy in general th- there honestly hasn't been a lot of difference between Democrats and Republicans in the presidency on trade policy and I think you made that point very clear I mean this was a uh, you know a lot of these uh, agreements were negotiated through Republican administrations but passed under Democratic administrations um, and everything from the NAFTA to the to the TPP last year, you know, examples of that. Now, getting getting to labor costs, uh, you know, there is a labor cost differential, and it does mean that some production will move overseas. But it's by far not the only factor in these sorts of decisions. And there are also things that we could be doing, but we aren't doing in trade agreements to try to level that playing field. One thing we know, and I don't want to get too wonky here, Leslie, but is that in trade theory, it, it you know it creates inequality within countries. That's part of the theory, and you know a way around that is to raise labor standards to make sure that the working people are earning more money so that they can buy more things as well. But that that is not the way that it has worked. We've had policies that have siphoned wealth to the to the very to the to the very wealthy to the one percent, and, and wages as a result of trade uh, have, have for trade impacted workers have gone down an average of eighteen hundred dollars a year so this is this is a this has had a tremendous impact we need to have better labor standards we need to deal with uh, government policies like currency manipulation uh to to get get a better playing field but our 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 current model of trade agreements is not the right approach mary well another thing too is that these trade agreements contain things that we didn't know about mostly we were having to say okay lower tariffs you know and and in my opinion World Trade Organization, part of the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade, that was done in 94, and Clinton was president then. That was terrible for all developed countries because they had to reduce their tariffs to very, very low. Within a short time, the countries that are eating our lunch now, you know, the emerging markets, uh, they had a longer period of time and maybe reduced their tariffs to a lesser amount. 
and I don't know what you do with the Togos and Potaguas of the world, you know, but uh, it, it was really uh, bad, and it, you know, it destroyed, uh, for the most part, what I really mostly enjoyed in my work was putting together these trade exhibitions all over the world, uh, probably did 50, uh, and I even took uh, a couple of delegations out. You should have seen China in 1984. Oh, my gosh. You know? mm. uh, actually, my trade mission, we were supposed to stay in Guangzhou as the last stop just to visit the consulate, and they found out they could take the open-air train on to Hong Kong, and they went. So, I mean, China in 1984 was not exactly... Um, wonderful place to be <laughs> it's definitely a different no. co- yeah definitely a different country now thank you and thank you for the call um uh, appreciate that oh god scott so much uh so much uh to to cover here um there is more than one indiana company that wants to go to mexico i talked about um a company down the street and certainly we know there are many con- companies not just in indiana but nationwide that want to go to mexico and I, I don't think a phone call from Donald Trump, if it were possible, time-wise, that if he called every one of them, is going to stop them, is it? No, it'll it'll take good policy. It'll take renegotiating these agreements. Uh, there's a real question as to whether uh, the Republican leaders in the Congress would would support an agenda like that. I, I actually think a lot of Democrats would. Um, but the you know one of the reasons why Trump caught fire. Uh, both within the Republican Party and then during the, uh, the the general election was this trade message. And yes, it was very close, and he lost the popular vote and all of that. But in these in these industrial heartland states, right. that message clearly resonated. Absolutely. And, it, and we we got to we got to focus on how to have a progressive response to that. I agree, Scott. Always a pleasure. Time always flies when you're here. Scott Paul, follow him on Twitter. Scott Paul at Scott Paul AAM. Uh, the website American Manu- Manufacturing.org. I'm Leslie Marshall.